0: You are listening to DermCast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to discuss how I treat acne in 2018. Okay, so our learning objectives, identify acne signs and symptoms, which I'm sure all of you know how to do. Um, I've kind of separated the talk today into different populations uh, of treatment uh, groups, Um, When would you refer acne to primary care or a specialist when it's not just acne? Uh, And develop a treatment algorithm for acne based on the presentation that you're seeing in front of you, and we'll use evidence-based medicine to determine that. So acne populations. This is kind of how I, in my personal practice, uh, separate patients into treatment groups. So adolescents, females and males, young adult females, and I just kind of arbitrarily 13 to 18, but depending on the patient, it could be 12 to 16, uh, adult females, adult males, females who are pregnant may become pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, in our medical record system, we have EMMA, and there's like an alert you can put on um, planning a pregnancy, but we kind of use that for anyone that could become pregnant, um, is pregnant, or breastfeeding. And then uh, trans- transgender patients, which I tend to see a lot of here in the Seattle area. So, transgender males, which are female to male, and transgender females, male to female. So, the pathophysiology of acne. Again, I won't belabor this. You guys all know about acne, but I think it's important to review it for your patients. Um, let them know what is happening, because oftentimes a patient will come into your office. And I don't know if it's just geographically here in Seattle, but they want to know, um, is it gluten? Is it dairy? What am I doing that I can stop doing, and then my skin will be perfectly clear for the rest of my life? Um, so the pathophysiology, it's increased sebum production, there's P. acnes, bacteria present, inflammation, and epidermal hyperproliferation. I don't use that term, epidermal hyperproliferation, when speaking to patients. But um, So here's a diagram, kind of a cartoon of what's happening in acne. And I think it's important to note that, you know, it used to be kind of thought that we had a microcomedone microcomedone that then turned into a comedone. It then became inflamed into a papule or a pustule and eventually developed into a nodule or a cyst. And that's actually not the case. This is, this, instead of a line, it should be kind of a circle. It could be going on at kind of any one time. You can have a cyst just come up uh, that wasn't necessarily formed from a comedone. So it's important to base your treatment on what you're seeing on the patient in front of you in the exam room that day. So grade one acne, we're simply seeing comedones. In this picture, it's mostly open comedones. Maybe some closed comedones, a tiny bit of inflammation, but still this would be probably grade one acne. Grade 2 acne, we're seeing comedones as well as some inflammatory papules and pustules in this photo here. Grade 3 acne, you're starting to see cysts. So you're getting uh, some of these deeper red ones like in this area. Uh, And I also in my practice see a lot of skin of color. And I think it's very important for your patients to differentiate what is acne and what is post inflammatory pigmentation. Because you'll see a patient, you know, the MA is written on the slip. They're here to follow up on acne and they're they're not happy. It's not better. It's exactly the same. And you walk in the room and you're thinking, this patient's great, what why are they unhappy? And so it's important to educate them that, you know, the first thing is the bumps go away will make your skin smooth, but that color change is not a scar, it's not permanent, but it could take, you know, months or sometimes even years for those to resolve. In grade 4 acne, we're starting to get some deeper nodules as well as cysts and papules. And acne conglobata, uh, typically on the chest and back, uh, can be associated with severe acne on the face as well. So acne in adolescent females. So this is something that's changed in the years that I have uh, practiced dermatology. So 17 years ago, if I had a 9-year-old in my office with acne, I would have thought, Oh, my gosh, is there something else going on with this patient? Do they have precocious puberty? Why is a nine-year-old sitting in front of me with acne? And now that's actually fairly common. Um, You want to ask this patient, uh, when they're in your office, what else have they tried? Because you'll sometimes see patients that will tell you, well, I've tried everything. And then you simply ask, well, have you tried anything prescription? Uh, So be specific. I'll sometimes, too, when the patient is scheduling the appointment, ask that they bring in what they've used. Because a lot of times, too, a patient will bring in 15 products, but they're all salicylic acid. So, you know, it's difficult to inform them, well, you've now spent $150 on 10 of the same things. Um, And also ask them, compare their acne today to what it is every other day. Is today a good day, a bad day, an average day? So does this patient have other physical signs of puberty? Um, Could it be precocious puberty? Adrenarche usually starts about eight or nine years old, and this is when you would probably start to see, it wouldn't be uncommon to start to see some signs of the beginnings of acne, some comedones on the forehead or central nose, maybe even on the chin. Um, The average age of menarche in this country is 12 and a half in Caucasian females and slightly younger, I think it's 12 years old, for African-American or Hispanic females. Uh, And then usually adrenarche precedes menarche by several years. So... My first word of advice, and I'm sure we all know this, but don't forget, is look at their skin. And this applies to all acne patients, but I would say in my experience, specifically female patients, uh, there'll be a discussion later, we'll talk about adult females, but I think it's very important to Look at their skin. And even if you have a dermoscope, uh, if you have a magnifying glass, get a light on there. Make sure that they know that you are looking. Ask about acne in other areas, um, their chest, their back. So when I see a patient with simply grade one acne, they're adolescent, they're young, they're 9 to 12, and they simply have comedones. My current recommendation, the first thing I'll usually go with, just because it's easy to get, is different 0.1% gel. It's over-the-counter, and it's $20. Sometimes when I prescribe things for acne, I feel like they're merely, you know, I think people have referred to the prescription pad as a suggestion pad, Uh, and really it's become frustrating. I feel like at some points it's easier to get, you know, perhaps a biologic for someone's psoriasis covered than an acne gel, so... Uh, I kind of choose the path of least resistance, uh, usually starting with the -the over-the-counter because most insurances do require that you've tried uh, at least one over-the-counter product, and I usually use Differin. Tretinoin, uh, 0.025 or 0.05, generally pretty tolerable. Some offices dispense this. I know uh, a lot of offices. Can I just see by a show of hands how many of you guys dispense like prescription stuff? Yeah, I think it's becoming pretty, pretty common, and you know, it kind of adds a surface to the patient that they don't have to go to the pharmacy, they don't have to deal with paperwork, uh, and they can get their medication. And then I also try to combine it with a benzoyl peroxide. Um, there's really no evidence that anything over 5%, whether it be a gel or a wash, is any more effective, but they can be simply more irritating. Um, the biggest thing with benzoyl peroxide, and they may or may not already know this, though, is that benzoyl peroxide bleaches fabric, so moms hate it. I one time had a mom come into my office, and I you know, kind of went through the whole treatment regimen, and then at the very end, I, I explained to her that, you know, get white pillowcases or old towels or, you know, wear an old white T-shirt to bed if you're going to use a leave-on on your chest and back, and the mom just started laughing out loud, and I I kind of gave her a puzzled look, and I, I asked what she was laughing about, and she's like, oh my gosh, I just bought all these new towels, and they had all these bleach spots, so I just went into Macy's, and I yelled at the poor sales girl at Macy's, telling her these towels were a ripoff, so, but she she did get all new towels, so, Um, and then uh, topical dapzone, uh, I'll use that again, sometimes with this one, it's kind of hit or miss, if it's going to be covered by insurance, there's a five percent preparation that's BID and a a 7.5% that's once a day. So I think if you're going to use Dapsone, topical Dapsone with a benzoyl peroxide, just make sure you warn your patients about if they're used concomitantly. They can get uh, this orange discoloration, um, usually only if they're both left on the skin overnight, but it does wash off. So the combination products, I love these if you can get them because they, I think, improve compliance. Um, The combination, that brand was Epiduo. I don't know if you can get it anymore, but it's a Dapoline 0.1% and benzoyl peroxide 2.5% gel. Uh, This product was actually studied in patients 9 to 12, and sometimes that can be a population where it's difficult to get uh, some of the retinoids covered because they're they're not studied in a population younger than 12. And then there's clindamycin-benzoyl peroxide combinations, uh, lots of different ones, lots of branded ones, generic ones. Uh, again, here, kind of whatever you can get covered. So I'll generally preferentially use a retinoid first, and if that's tolerated but not maybe improving things completely, I'll add in a benzoyl peroxide, either wash or gel, or if we can, try a combination product. Uh, and then if that's too irritating, if the retinoid is not tolerated, I'll generally try one of these clindamycin BPO uh, combo products. So adolescent females with, you know, comedones, as well as papules and pustules, We'll start talking about, you know, adding in some sort of antibiotic, whether it be topical. Um, I think clindamycin gel is probably uh, the easiest one to get, although it is expensive. Uh, recently, I had a patient call me and say uh, the acne gel I had prescribed, even though it was generic, was still going to cost them $277. Uh, and then we have oral antibiotics. So I think the discussion usually comes up, especially with your younger patients, they're most likely going to have a parent in there with them. Um, do you want to put your child on an oral antibiotic? And again, this could be geographical being here in the Northwest. People are kind of uh, granola. They want something natural. Uh, so they're, they're a little bit uh, apprehensive oftentimes about taking oral antibiotics. Uh, so I'll kind of follow the parent's lead if they would prefer a topical, I'll usually give them a couple months, and then we can reevaluate and see how things are going. Um, when you use oral antibiotics uh, for acne, and I generally prefer like a minocycline or a doxycycline, generic if tolerated. We'll sometimes try uh, a branded tablet if they don't tolerate the generic formulation. So, you know, when you're talking to parents and patients about oral antibiotics, you want to make sure... Um, Oftentimes, if they're hovering right around the age of 12, I'll usually ask questions about, like, how many teeth they've lost, if they still have some adult teeth, um, because I think the guideline generally is 12 years of age for a tetracycline antibiotic, uh, and I've prescribed them younger, uh, especially in patients that are maybe a little bit further along in their developmental uh, puberty uh, range. Um, allergies, possible allergy to oral antibiotics. And then, uh, again, we're in the northwest, and as you can see, it's June 29th, and it's a balmy 64 degrees outside. So uh, we do get sun here, but it's maybe not necessarily as big of a concern, except in the month of August, uh, for our patients to get, like, photosensitivity with tetracycline antibiotics. So talk to them also about uh, side effects of these oral antibiotics. Um, minocycline specifically can have some of the um, dizziness, upset stomach, interactions with uh, oral contraceptive pills, doxycycline, the photosensitivity, as well as GI upset. So I'll generally um, you know, ask these patients if they have any of these symptoms before. Um, and personally, this is my own kind of personal thing I've noticed over years of doing this, If you're going to have a patient complain of being dizzy on minocycline, it is probably going to be an 87-pound 13-year-old girl, so start low with those patients. Um, Maybe like even a 50-milligram dose is what I'll I'll try, 50 50 milligrams QD. Um, For patients that either don't tolerate or have allergies to the tetracycline antibiotics, um, I will use a sulfa antibiotic. Um, Always warn about photosensitivity and uh, possible allergy concerns. I try to stay away from amoxicillin and cephalosporins, although every once in a while I'll see someone that'll come in and they've been on this medicine for 15 years from their primary care doctor and they just need a refill of their amoxicillin. So uh, I generally don't use them unless there's really no other alternative. And later in the discussion, there's we can talk more about that. So this is a question for you guys. They're probably going to play some cool music and you can... Press your button. Do you prescribe oral contraceptive pills in your practices? No music? I guess he's, he's on a break right now. Oh, there it is. I don't know if we get to see it. So 50-50. I kind of figured it would be that. I think kind of here locally, that's the general consensus that, that we get here. Um, and I don't know whether that's personal uh, comfort level, supervising physician. Um, I do prescribe oral contraceptive pills and very frequently in my practice. So uh, do you have an age cutoff for prescribing contraceptive pills? You can simply, I don't know, did you plug this in for the, to answer? I don't know if he's back there. Um, but I wanted to just ask the group if it was yes or no, and then do you have guidelines? Um, my personal guideline for prescribing uh, oral contraceptive pills is if they've been menstruating for one year, regardless of their age, um, and women under 35. So acne in young adult females. So this this group, in my mind, is kind of like this, uh, you know, 13 to 18 year old. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 18 year old patient, uh, maybe pre-college, late high school. Um, So, you know, again, this is all kind of similar, the same topicals. You're going to use retinoids, benzoyl peroxides, and whatnot. But for these patients, um, I'll give them the option of an antibiotic pill or a birth control pill. In my personal opinion, I really try to get most of them on a birth control pill versus keeping them on antibiotics. Uh, And I have recently heard that there's some dermatology practices that are not prescribing antibiotics for acne at all. Uh, I still do, but I really try to make it a temporary to get the acne, you know, maybe kind of calm it down and then uh, get them on something for maintenance. So uh, for the oral contraceptive pill, uh, there's lots of them out there. I tend to prescribe those that contain drosperinone as the progesterone I find them to be much more effective uh, than other progesterones, but there's some others that do work. Uh, You know, talking to them about risk of DBT, family history, um, oftentimes if mom's in the visit, they'll mention a family history of breast cancer, and if that's a concern. Uh, Personally, unless someone has a very strong family history of breast cancer, essentially every female in their family has had breast cancer, I will generally still prescribe birth control to them, um, unless that's the case. Uh, risk of DBT, and then obviously, you know, they're coming to the dermatology office to talk about acne, and oftentimes people are uh, shocked and surprised that you would bring up a birth control pill. So there's also some kind of social things around it. Um, a lot of times, you know, parents work, so might be in seeing you with their grandma or you know their dad and their brother and it can be somewhat of a difficult conversation so a lot of times this will be a suggestion and then know um, they might go home talk with mom and come back at their next visit maybe get things calmed down with some antibiotic pills and then we can talk about it more at their next visit so in young adult females if they have scarring cysts or nodules or we've tried all those other things and it's still not working I am fairly uh, liberal and I have a very low threshold for prescribing isotretinoin. Um, The iPledge system can be a bit of a pain, especially if you don't have staff that's trained well on it. Um, I happen to have really good staff. Everybody knows iPledge. We have um, very good algorithms in our office and treatment plans that people know how to do this and what to do. Uh, So two forms of birth control. Um, Again, I just have a question we can do by show of hands. How many of you will accept abstinence as a form of birth control? Okay. I I do. Um, Especially, I I usually try, regardless of the age of the patient, to question her um, by herself. So if she's young enough that she's there with a parent, I'll sometimes show her where the restroom is to leave her urine sample and often, you know, catch her in the hall and just kind of reiterate to her that, you know, what we discuss between the two of us is private, and I just need her to be honest with me. Uh, So spironolactone. Do you prescribe spironolactone? Well, that that answer makes me happy. I'm glad to see that. Um, I'm curious for those that don't, maybe we can discuss in the Mingle Zone um, why. Maybe it's just not something you see needed in your practice or maybe you don't see adult women with acne. Um, I prescribe spironolactone a lot. Um, So the question with spironolactone, um, there's some more stuff later, but uh, do you monitor potassium levels? And I generally do. I monitor it after they've been on it for three months and then I monitor it once a year. Um, there's been some, some articles published that show, you know, are we ordering unnecessary labs? And, you know, there was a study that had um, uh, potassium levels for women on spironolactone. There wasn't any information on dose, so I don't know if it's 25 milligrams or 200 milligrams. But it actually showed that potassium levels, when patients 18 to 45, uh, it's probably not necessary to check them annually. But I, I still check them. I'm not quite ready to sign off on that. Um, so for acne in adult females, I find you know if they either don't want to go on a birth control pill, can't go on a birth control pill, um, maybe already have some other method of birth control in place and they don't need a birth control pill, spironolactone is definitely my go-to. Um, still the same goes for the topicals. Try to get them on some sort of retinoid. It might be more difficult for these patients to tolerate benzoyl peroxides that tend to have more sensitive skin. Um, so the side effects of spironolactone... Um, Depending on dosage, you can get you know breast tenderness, spotting between periods, lightheadedness, um, and again, I think the lightheadedness and the dizziness is due to you know lowering one's blood pressure, uh, and it's more common I find in petite females, the you know women that are weighing less than a. 100 pounds, um, so I'll start off with a very low dose, usually 25 milligrams once a day. But if that's not working, um, I will go up to 100 milligrams twice a day until we get control, and then depending on how well they're tolerating it, we might uh, decrease. So it's important to know, too, that spironolactone used in acne, which is something most of us in this room do, is considered off-label. So I usually tell patients that because if they go home and Google spironolactone, They might get some information about acne, but at first they'll just see uh, its use as a diuretic. So this is the study I was referring to. It was from 2000 to 2014, and they looked at the rates of hyperkalemia, and this was in healthy young women, 18 to 45, um, and they were similar to baseline. So there was no information on uh, the dosage, but I do still check at three months and then once a year. So this adult female acne patient has come to be kind of probably the type of patient I see more than anything else. Uh, I also see a lot of psoriasis patients. But um, I think in this population, sometimes you are the third or fourth or fifth office they've gone to. I think these patients are often very frustrated. So um, it's important with these patients to look at them, like I said earlier, but even more so in this population. Um, if any of you have ever looked online at your own Yelp reviews or anyone else's Yelp reviews, um, oftentimes a common thread is they didn't even look at my skin. But this pattern of this female acne that we're seeing on the chin and jawline, maybe even on the neck, is so common. And it's, it's not something that separates them from anyone else, but to them, it's like the only thing that they, they know. They only know their own acne. Um, also, if a patient offers, and sometimes they'll even ask, oh, you know, is today a good day or a bad day, and if they tell me it's a good day, a lot of times they'll have a photo of themselves, because now everyone has a smartphone with a camera on it, and they'll present to you, uh, you know, a picture of them on a bad day. Um, a lot of times we'll ask them to take their makeup off, just because I think it makes them feel better that you're able to see everything that's going on, although it, oftentimes it's really not necessary for them to take their makeup off. Um, so we have, like, a Cetaphil pump or CeraVe or whatever the rep gave us uh, in the office so they can, in the bath in the, near the sink in the exam room, so they can wash their makeup off and we can look at them. Uh, and also have them bring the products they're trying because um, oftentimes they're using multiple products that have the same ingredient and they're sitting in front of you with red peeling skin because they're using three things that have benzoyl peroxide in them. So acne in adolescent males. So in this population, um, Not that I don't stress hygiene for adolescent females, but in adolescent males, um, just simply reminding them, you know, wash your face. I'll say, if you don't wear makeup, I'm assuming you don't. You know, wash your face once a day is fine. Um, Again, talk to them about using moisturizers um, because oftentimes they don't. They're not as trained as your female patients to be rubbing creams and lotions and whatnot all over their skin. So um, I'll oftentimes, too, have, like, a little tester in the room, and I'll show them what a pea-sized amount is, not the entire sample tube, but a pea-sized amount and how to apply it. When I see these patients back in follow up, I'll usually ask them to repeat back to me how they're using it, when they're using it, um, or if they're using it at all. Uh, Sometimes if you're lucky, they'll bring in the tube that's completely full and they'll tell you that their medicine isn't working. So make sure that they're using it the way you've asked them to. So acne in adult males, um, a lot of these guys have been dealing with acne since they were teenagers. They may have been on Accutane prior. You know, maybe they took it when they were in high school and now they're sitting in front of you and they're 35 and their skin was clear until they were 30. So uh, topicals, antibiotics, but I, again, have a very low threshold for prescribing isotretinoin in in these patients. Um, I will often do a full, you know, four- to six-month course depending on what we can get covered by their insurance Uh, And then sometimes, this is kind of off-label, and I don't know how many of you feel comfortable doing this, but for certain patients, male patients, or even a female patient that's maybe had a hysterectomy and cannot get pregnant, um, I will sometimes use a low dose of isotretinoin long-term, write them 30 pills and tell them to take one every week or two, uh, maybe check labs once a year. It works very well, especially in an adult male patient that has maybe done multiple courses, that four to six month course of Accutane, if they've done it several times and they're just not remaining clear. So acne in women who are pregnant, trying to become pregnant or breastfeeding. This is a difficult population because this process of trying to become pregnant, being pregnant and then breastfeeding can last three years and then you know women will often have multiple children. So you know, it can be five to six years of their life that they're kind of in this category. Um, I generally use um, azelaic acid, gel, or foam if we can get it covered. It's pregnancy Category B, although it's indicated for the treatment of rosacea. I find it works great for mild acne. Um, Topical antibiotics, clindamycin, if you can get it covered. In this population, um, I will use other than tetracycline or sulfa antibiotics just due to safety factors if someone is having deep cystic acne, um, and I'm concerned about scarring, and I want to step in to prevent scarring. So depending on tolerability, amoxicillin or cephalosporins, although they're not my favorite antibiotics to use. So acne in transgender females. So this is a male-to-female uh, transgender patient. Um, Spironolactone works great in these patients. Um, In fact, a lot of them might already be on a little bit of it. Um, So kind of experiment with the dose. Um, I oftentimes find with these patients, I do have to do the 200 milligram, 100 milligrams twice a day, Um, but they do quite well. A lot of them are also, you know, kind of looking for hair removal methods. They're probably already doing hair lasers, so you can get some additional benefit in maybe um, reducing some hair growth and also helping with their acne. And again, too, in these patients I would use, I would stress the importance of uh, using a topical, usually a retinoid if tolerated. So acne in males on testosterone, um, I don't know if this is the same in your neck of the woods, but we have all sorts of these longevity male health clinics popping up. Um, There are several in this area, and I have a lot of men coming into my office who um, have seen this clinician at this clinic I I think he might even be a chiropractor. Uh, And he has put this patient on testosterone, which the patient feels great. They've never had more energy. They feel so healthy. But now they have a ton of acne all over their chest and back and face. And they're not sure, but it might have something to do with the testosterone they're on. So, you know, I'll simply talk to these patients. And at this point, you know, if they're truly a low-T patient, as they refer to themselves. Um, You know, I usually refer them to an endocrinologist or even their primary care doctor. Sometimes some patients do better on injectable testosterone. Some patients do better on a patch of testosterone. Um, But just so that they know that the acne is a direct result of the testosterone that they're on. So despite how great they feel, they might have to be on all these other regimens, topicals, antibiotics, even isotretinoin, if their acne is severe enough. So acne in transgender males, so a female to male. Um, You want to avoid spironolactone in these patients because they are um, on testosterone usually, uh, so they don't want to be on that medication. Um, An interesting thing that comes up with these patients, although they're male and in the state of Washington they can change their ID and their insurance can say they're male, it's important to ask them and it can be somewhat of an awkward conversation, um, unless you see a lot of patients like this and you're comfortable talking about it, but even though they are a female to male, uh, if they have a uterus, if they are doing anything that could increase their risk of becoming pregnant, you have to treat them as a female with reproductive potential. So um, this is kind of an interesting topic. I've not yet put a female to male transgender patient on Accutane, but it is something you would have to consider when you are registering them for pledge, and probably would need to do uh, pregnancy tests one minute to spare. So I think there'll be questions in the the mingle zone after. I don't know if there's a thing to take them now. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.